Lord God, thank you, um, as always, that we can come here together um, and read your word together and study it together, Lord. I thank you that you've so much that you've given out, given us your word, Lord, that your truth is available to us. Um, and I ask that you would speak to us through it, that you would teach us more about you, more about your love, more about your plan for our lives, and that you would um, encourage us in our walk with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so, quick catch up on where we're at. We're about to start chapter 6 um, of the book of Romans. We're about 15 um, weeks in, I think. And the first two chapters, in the first two chapters of the book of Romans, Paul laid out the problem, right? Which is that man is sinful and there's no possible way for us to be justified. What does justified mean? Made righteous. No, not quite. But close. Shown to be right. Yeah, declared to be righteous. You, you're picturing being in a court and the judge has given his verdict and the verdict is not guilty. That's kind of the idea. You're declared to be righteous as opposed to um, sinful. And so the problem is man is sinful and so there's no possible way for us to be declared righteous, to be said that you're not sinful. That, and righteous is actually a step above that. It's not only that you're not guilty, it's that you're actually like actively good. So there's no possible way that we can be declared righteous according to the law of God, right? Because none of us have kept the law of God. Um, and so as, as Paul says in Romans 3, there is no one righteous, not even one. So that was the first two chapters. The third chapter, Paul starts to um, lay out the solution that God is going to justify us, which means? Make us righteous. No. <laughs> Justification is? Come on, I just said it. No. Okay. It's not making you righteous, because you're not righteous. It's declaring you righteous. It's just the act of saying that you are righteous. Yeah? Making you righteous is a different thing, and that's what we're actually going to start to talk about today. But the, the issue that Paul is dealing with in the first five chapters of Romans is not how God makes you righteous. It's how he declares you righteous. It's how he says, how, how he gets to a point where he, can, where he can declare you righteous, where he can say that you are righteous, even though you're not righteous. And so in chapter three, Paul lays out that the solution, how God is going to justify or declare us righteous um, in spite of our sinfulness. And it's on the basis of faith, not works, is the point that he makes. That's the another type of righteousness that we're going to be given. Not a righteousness that is based on us having perfectly obeyed his law through works, but a righteousness that is given on the basis of our faith. So more specifically, if we trust Jesus, God will, God will give, he will credit Jesus' righteousness to us and he will treat us as though we are righteous um, as Jesus is. Now, in chapter four, Paul showed that that isn't a new idea, that the only way that anybody has ever been declared righteous is on the basis of their faith. And in doing that, Paul demonstrates the unity of the Old and New Testament, that it's said that the Bible is consists of 66 books that were composed by 40 different authors over 2,000 years, but it's one message. 
everything to the finest detail is integrated and consistent from beginning to end. And Paul's showing that in chapter 4, that this other type of righteousness, this other way of being justified that he's um, explaining to us is not a new idea. This isn't something that he came up with in Romans. It's not even just the New Testament. That this, is, this has always been, right from the beginning of the Old Testament, the way that God declared people righteous. And he uses Abraham as the example, saying that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That on the basis of his belief, God credited him righteousness, not on the basis of his works. So, okay. So that was chapter 4. In chapter 5, Paul started to explain what the consequences of this justification by faith, this other kind of righteousness, are. Um, He said that we have peace with God. If you remember, that was a couple weeks ago. We have peace with God. We have access into, we, we have permission to enter the throne room of God. We have permission to be there. Because we have peace with God, we have joy in spite of our suffering and we have hope regardless of our circumstances which is really cool then paul contrasted adam with jesus and he made the point that just as adam acted on our behalf right i didn't eat the fruit in the in the garden adam did but he did it when he did that he was acting on behalf of everybody who was going to follow him. And he acted on our behalf, disobeyed God, sinned, and that sin then flowed down to all of the people who followed after him. In exactly the same way, Jesus acted on our behalf. I didn't fulfill the law of God. Jesus fulfilled the law of God. And the his righteousness, the righteousness that he has, because he fulfilled the law of God, flows down to all of those who follow after him. And so they're kind of like um, parallels of each other. And uh, then Paul ended chapter 5 with a very surprising statement. He said, Now the law came in so that the transgression may increase. But where sin increased, grace multiplied all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, like I said, this was quite surprising. Uh, why did the, why was the law given? What does he say? So that transgression may increase. Yeah, that's not what we would think, right? We would think that laws, rules are given to make us better people, to make us uh sin or like break the rules less but what paul says is that that's actually not the case with the law of god that god's law was given so that sin would increase it didn't come to make us better people it came to make us actually even worse people why to show us that we're sinners Yep, so the one big thing is it makes it all it makes it even more obvious or as obvious as possible to us that we can't justify ourselves, we can't be righteous ourselves, that we need God to declare us righteous um, and to forgive us our sins. What else does it do? It acts as a mirror that we can look into and see where we are i would say that'd be probably related to to the idea of it being more obvious how sinful we are but if you remember last week we looked at this example um of a lady who came and washed jesus feet and the pharisee who jesus was eating with was uh cynical i guess he's like i if jesus was really a prophet he would know what kind of woman was washing his teeth uh, his <laughs> washing his feet and uh anyway jesus goes on to say to him like there's a reason why she is uh loving me so much and it's because she because her sins which are many right were forgiven and he says that he who what 
to whom much is forgiven, or I can't remember exactly now how what what the word what wording was, but basically, the more you're forgiven, the more you love, and so I think that's part of it as well. The more sinful we are, the more we appreciate what God's done for us, and the more we love Him for that, um, is the idea. But okay, so fine. Uh, it makes us more aware of our sinfulness, and it makes us love God more. But what about the sin, right? There's still now increased sin. And the point that Paul makes here is that it doesn't really matter. As much as sin increases, grace increases all the more. Great, God's grace is infinite. It's limitless. Um, and so however much sin there is, God's grace has it covered. Which is wonderful, right? But it, it does raise an obvious question. And, it's, and that is the question where Paul starts in, um, or what, Paul starts with that question in the next chapter, chapter 6. So, chapter 6, verse 1. Does anybody want to read? We don't have a lot of mics on this morning. Okay, chapter 6, verse 1. Paul says, what shall we say then? So remember what he's just said, right? The law was given so that transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So then, what should we say? Are we to remain in sin so that grace may increase? So for three chapters now, Paul has been saying again and again and again and again that you are not saved based on what you do right? By being righteous, by not sinning. What you do is irrelevant to your justification before God, to your being declared righteous before God, because God declares you righteous based on your faith, not based on what you do. And I've just said that sin isn't really a problem for God, that it doesn't matter how much sin there is, God's grace has that covered, that God's grace is infinite. And so then does that mean that we can just keep on living life as we want? Can we keep on sinning knowing that God has God's grace has no limit? Is the question. That's what he's asking. Does that mean it doesn't matter? Now, this has, this has been a criticism of the doctrine or the teaching of salvation by grace through faith right from the beginning. Basically, if you tell people that God will save them despite their sins, then what motivation will there be not to sin, right? Is the idea. And it's that point that Paul is going to begin to address, address here. Now, before we go on, there's something um, worth noting about Paul's language in this chapter. In verse 15, Paul says something very similar. So Romans 6 verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to remain in sin so that grace may increase? In verse 15, Paul says, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Very similar, right? But there's actually a, a slight difference that I think is quite important. To begin with, what are the verbs in each sentence? What is the verb in verse 1 and what is the verb in verse 15? What's the verb in verse 15? Sin is the verb. Sin is. That's right. Sin is the ver verb in verse 15. What is the verb in verse 1? Remain and sin. <laughs> Remain in. Yeah, sin is not actually a verb in verse 1. It's a noun. Right? It's not something that you do. It's something essentially that you are. It's, some, it's a... It's a um, it's the state that you are in. You are in sin. And the verb is actually remain, to, to continue in. Okay, but that's not the, other, the, the only difference. The form of the verb in each sentence is also different, though it perhaps isn't so obvious when we read it in, in English. Um, in Greek, the, the verb remain in is... 
in what's called the present tense. It's, it describes something that is continuous, a continuous action, something that is continually occurring, right? And so, in other words, what Paul is describing in verse 1 is a lifestyle of sin. It's not like occasionally messing up or sinning despite your efforts not to. In verse 1, what Paul is dealing with is a deliberate, conscious, and willful uh, life of habitual sin. Like you, 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 you are living in it. You're just continually in a particular sin or sinning. Um, thinking that it's acceptable because it exalts God's grace. Does that make sense? This isn't just a sin that you do. This is a lifestyle of sin. Like you're just living in it is the idea. Um, and so that's the focus of, that's Paul's focus in the first 14 verses of chapter 6. Is not just individual sins, but like habitual sins. In verse 15, the focus changes a little bit. The, the verb, like we said in verse 15, is sin. Um, and it, the tense is not a tense that we actually have in English. It's a Greek aorist tense. And it always describes a single action that's not connected to other actions. Does that make sense? So it's the complete opposite of what he's talking about in verse 1. In verse 1, it's like just a, a continual lifestyle of sin. In verse, six, uh, in verse 15, he's talking about single individual sins um, that we might commit. And so like, okay, so we shouldn't live in continuous sin, but what about like occasionally indulging in sin? Um, and so that's what Paul is going to deal with in the second half of chapter six. But we'll, we'll look at that when we get there. For now, let's see how Paul answers this question. So what shall we say then? Are we to remain in sin so that grace may increase? Answer, absolutely not. Literally, he says, may it, let it never be. That is unthinkable. In the King James Bible, it's translated, God forbid, which is clear, right? The answer is? No. No. Definitely not. So, okay. We shouldn't remain in sin. Then is... Paul saying that what we do actually does matter. Because for five chapters now, he's been saying, essentially, what you do does not matter. You're not saved based on what you do. But now he's saying, but you shouldn't live in sin. Which sort of suggests that what you do now does matter, at least in some sense. Um, yeah, and I think to understand that we need to discuss the term salvation in a little bit more detail because the word salvation is not very precise and at this point we need to be a little bit more precise. So it's often said that salvation has three tenses. There is the past tense of salvation which more precisely, is justification. We have been saved. And that has been Paul's focus for the first five chapters of the book of Romans, is justification. How are we going to be justified? How are we going to be declared righteous, given our sinfulness? Basically, how will we be saved from the punishment or the guilt of sin? And Paul's conclusion was, how are we going to be justified? On the basis of... Our faith. On the basis of our faith, not our works. More specifically, if we have faith in Jesus, God will give us Jesus' righteousness as a gift. And a gift is not earned. We cannot earn our justification before God. He declares us righteous by His grace and we do nothing to deserve it. 
So Paul has made that absolutely clear at this point, right? There should be no confusion whatsoever about that fact. Furthermore, Paul made it clear that this has already happened. It's complete. It's done. In chapter 5, he said, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, past tense, right? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 9, he said, Much more then, because we have now been declared righteous, past tense, by his blood, we will be saved through him from God's wrath. So our justification is in the past. Once you trust in Jesus, you have been justified. You are righteous as far as God is concerned. And you did and can do nothing to deserve that righteousness. As the famous evangelist Billy Graham said, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We're all the same. None of us deserve to be justified any more or less than anybody else. We're all equal as far as our justification is concerned. Any questions? Is that totally clear? Yeah, good. Okay. So, we're all equal as far as our justification is concerned. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Does that mean that the ground is level in heaven? What do you think? No. Why not? Because um, God is in heaven, <laughs> and He's He's above us. Okay, we're sh we're definitely not equal with God, but are we all equal in heaven? Yeah. The short answer is no. In fact, the Bible teaches quite clearly, I, I think, that we will not all be equal in heaven. Jesus said, many who are first will be last and the last will be first. So the last will be first and the first will be last. If you're last and someone else is first, you're not equal, right? The Apostle John said, Watch out so that you do not lose the things we have worked for, but receive a full reward. And Paul said uh, lots of similar things. He said in 1 Corinthians 9, Do you not know that all the runners in a stadium compete, but only one receives the prize? So, run to win. Each competitor exercises self-control in everything. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable one. So I do not run uncertainly or box like one who hits only air. Instead, I subdue my body and make it my slave so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. What is Paul talking about? What would he be disqualified from? What is John concerned about, concerned that people may lose? rewards and like riches yeah it, it can't be justification right paul has made that absolutely clear that we do not work for work to be justified your justification does not depend on anything you do it is a gift of god and so he cannot be talking about being disqualified or losing justification but that doesn't mean you have nothing to lose. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says, Each one must be, carefully, must be careful how he builds. For no one can lay any foundation other than what is being laid, which is, Christ, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on that foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each builder's work will be plainly seen for the day will make it clear. 
because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what kind of work each has done. If what someone has built survives, he will receive a reward. If someone's work is burnt up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as through the fire. So you see, there are rewards for us in heaven. And those rewards depend on what we do with the life and the opportunities that we've been given now. And notice that even if all of your work is burnt up, he himself will still be saved, right? We will still be saved. We will still be justified. You can't lose your justification. But you will enter heaven with nothing. In the book of Revelation, in two places, it says that God will wipe away every tear from our from from their eyes why are there tears in heaven because of regret of not having the rewards that other people have that you could have gotten yeah there's a, a guy called ralph waldo emerson who wrote the saddest words of tongue or pen are these it might have been and it's been suggested that the tears in heaven will be tears of regret, tears over opportunities that we wasted for the sake of things that uh, in heaven will be utterly meaningless. And so I think that's what's going on. I think that's what Paul is talking about. Again, your, your justification, past tense, salvation, you can't lose that. It's got nothing to do with what you do or don't do. Um, but that doesn't mean so. But just because you can't lose your salvation in terms of your justification doesn't mean there's nothing to lose. Uh, there are there are things in heaven that I guess we're not going to have um, that we're not going to have based on the way that we use the opportunities that God has given us now. Um, so. What is it that we stand to lose? Well, I've heard it described that there's a difference between entering heaven and inheriting heaven. That just because I let you into my house doesn't mean you can rearrange the furniture. And that's sort of the idea. Like, everyone that God justifies will be allowed to enter into heaven, to be with Jesus in heaven. But not everyone is going to inherit heaven. Not everyone is going to have ownership and authority in heaven. Um, that inheritance is conditional. There are, there are ifs, right? Our salvation is not an if. Have faith in Jesus and you will be saved. You will be justified. There's no ifs. It's got nothing to do with you. It's not conditional. But there are other things in the Bible that are conditional. That it's, that where God does say, if you do this, then you will have that kind of thing. And uh, again, in Revelation Jesus writes, hold on to what you have until I come to the one who conquers or overcomes and who continues in my deeds until the end. I will give him authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod and like clays, clay jars, he will break them into pieces just as I have received the right to rule from my father and I will give him the morning star. So he's basically saying to these people who overcome uh, what's you, you need to read the rest of the letter to understand. Um, I don't know if you know, but in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, there are seven letters written by Jesus to particular churches. They're quite short. They're really interesting. They're worth reading. And each letter, there's like some stuff that they're struggling with. And Jesus says, if you overcome that, then I will give you this. And in this case, he says to these, um, to these believers, if they overcome, he will give them authority over the nations. And I think that this relates to the, the millennial kingdom, the thousand year reign of Jesus, and that certain believers are going to be in a position of authority. He says that I will let them rule with an, or they will rule with an iron rod and like clay jars, they will break them to pieces. That's, a, that's referencing things that are written about Jesus, right? That he is going to do rule with an iron rod and Jesus is saying he's going to give that authority to these believers to reign with him. Um, in Revelation 3, in one of the other letters, he says, this is the letter to Philadelphia, which is the, the one that um, 
It's the best letter. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one can take away your crown. The implication is that if you don't hold on to what you have, somebody could take away your crown, right? And the crown, again, is um, it's, it's a picture of some, some sort of rewards or authority or something that we have in heaven. He says, hold on to what you have so that no one can take away your crown. The one who conquers, who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God and he will never depart from it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name as well. So these are conditional promises, right? And Jesus gives, Jesus says that he will give these things to those who conquer or overcome um, whatever it is that they're struggling with. Those who continue in his deeds until the end, who hold on to what they have. And there are similar verses um, elsewhere in the New Testament. In 2 Timothy, uh, Paul writes, If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. And so again, that's like, it's conditional. If we endure, if we, we talked about that, what, uh, two weeks ago, Romans chapter 5, you Endure, endurance, suffering produces endurance or patience. Patience produces character, character produces hope. This is the same idea. It's endurance. It's enduring through suffering. And if we endure through suffering with him, we will also reign with him. And that's, that's inheritance, right? You're not, that's not just you can enter heaven. This is you can reign in heaven or at least in the kingdom, in, in Jesus' kingdom. In James, James writes, Did not God choose the poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs, again, inheriting the kingdom that he promised to those who love him? And in Colossians, Paul writes, Whatever you are doing, work at it with all your heart as to the Lord and not for people, because you know that you will receive your inheritance from the Lord as the reward. The reward is for working at it with all your heart, right? And the implication would be that if you don't work at it with all your heart, then that reward isn't for you kind of thing. So in other words, there are responsibilities that God will entrust to his believers in his kingdom that depend on the, our faithfulness in this life. And Jesus said the same thing in his parables. Um, the parable of the talents, the one who had received five talents came and brought five more saying, Sir, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I've gained five more. And his master answered, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And it's based on the principle in Luke 16, where Jesus says, The one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And so that's the idea. In this life, God is giving us little and if we show ourselves faithful in that little, he's then going to entrust us with much in, um, in eternity, is the idea. So again, you cannot, and I, and I cannot stress this uh, strongly enough, you cannot lose, gain or lose your salvation, or more precisely, your justification, having been declared righteous, based on the things you do or don't do. But we definitely can gain or lose um, rewards in eternity based on the way that we use the life that God has given us here on earth. And so that brings us to the second tense in um, the three tenses of salvation. So we've had the past tense, justification. That is done. And nothing that we do has any influence on our justification. It's complete. But the, then we have a present tense of salvation. And the present tense of salvation, more precisely, is termed sanctification. And now we are being saved. We have been saved and we are being saved. Um, and sanctification describes the process by which we are made more righteous. So I asked earlier what justification meant and you guys wanted to say being made righteous. But this is why that distinction is important. Justification is not being made righteous. It's being declared righteous. Sanctification is the process by which we are made more righteous, more holy, more sanctified or set apart. Um, 
And notice it's not, a pro it's not the process by which we make ourselves more righteous. It's the process by which God makes us more righteous. Um, it's, yeah, or more holy. It's the process by which God saves us from the power of sin. So justification saved us from the punishment of sin by declaring us righteous. Sanctification progressively saves us. We are being saved from the power of sin in our lives. Um, now, justification, when you are justified, it's a change in category, right? You are either justified or not justified. You can't be kind of justified. Yes? You've changed from one category to another category. Sanctification isn't like that. Sanctification is a continuum. You can be more or less sanctified. Does that make sense? It's different. Justification, you are either justified or not justified. But sanctification is a continuum. It's a line you can, where you can be progressively more or less sanctified depending on, well, depending on the extent to which you submit to God's will in your life um, and allow his spirit to work in you. And so that's where Paul is going to start to head now uh, from chapter six onwards. He's going to start discussing our sanctification because you see, God has, uh, God has plans for you. He loves you just the way you are, but he doesn't want to leave you just the way you are. He has way, way bigger hopes for you than that. Um, he wants to make you or build you into a particular kind of person. He wants to mold you into the image of who? Christ. Jesus. Who is Jesus? Son of God. God himself, right? That's pretty, uh, that's pretty extravagant ambitions for us. He wants to mold us into his own image, into the image of God, which is like, as I said, it's amazing. And while justification depended entirely on God, sanctification doesn't. Sanctification actually requires us to cooperate with him, to allow him to, allow him to uh, do that work in us, to sanctify us. Does that make sense? Quite important. Justification, category change. You are justified or not justified. You were unjustified, now you are justified and you don't do anything. You're, you're irrelevant really to that process apart from having faith in Jesus. Sanctification is different. Sanctification is a, is a process and you are actually actively involved in that process. You have to allow God to work in you in order to become more sanctifi sanctified. Um, but you must remember that everything we talk about now is built on a foundation that is five chapters deep where Paul has said again and again and again and again and again that we have been justified past tense we have been declared righteous not by our works but by our faith Right? Nothing that Paul says from here on out has anything to do with our justification. Paul has made that point and he's moving on. He's moving forward. Right? You've be, you have been justified. Great. Stop living in the past. What are you going to do with the immense gift that God has given you? That's his focus as we, as we go forward now in chapter 6. So in other words, Paul is going to discuss how we build on the foundation that Jesus laid with gold, silver, and precious stones rather than wood, hay, and stubble. How we store up treasures in heaven and receive eternal rewards and inherit the kingdom of God and reign with Jesus. That's what he's that's what he's interested in now. Right? We've we've crossed the line. We've made we've but that is just the first step. Justification is just the start. It's the very the very least of what God wants for you and has in mind for you. 
Now he's going to start talking, okay, how do we make the most of what God has given us? How do we uh, inherit all that he wants to, to pour out on us? And sanctification is a huge part of making that possible. And so that brings us to the final tense of salvation, which is um, usually termed glorification. We have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. But we will finally be saved from the very presence of sin and enter into the presence of God. And it's then that we will finally receive the reward for the life that we've lived here. Is the idea. Now, just to be clear, we won't we won't ever be able to follow God's will for our lives perfectly, nor does he expect us to. That's not what it's about. God is not looking for a perfect person. David, I love King David and the example that he gives us because he was he was far from a perfect person, but he was described as a man after God's own heart. And I don't know that there's a better um, compliment than that. He wasn't perfect. He sinned terribly, but David had a heart that longed for God and longed to please God. And that's all that God is asking from us. We will mess up. That's okay. What matters is how you respond when you do. Recognize that you have choices in your life. Recognize when you make the wrong choices. And when you make the wrong choices, confess them to God. As John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous, forgiving us our sins and cleansing us from all unrighteousness. And then like Paul, having confessed your sins and being forgiven by God, move on, move forward, keep moving. In Philippians, Paul writes, this one thing I do, forgetting the things that are behind and stretching forward to the things that are ahead, I keep pursuing the goal for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So, does that all make sense? Tenses of salvation? Yes. Past tense, justification. Present tense, sanctification. Future tense, glorification. We've, we, we often just use the word salvation, and that's fine, but, but it's not very precise, and it can lead to confusion it can lead to confusion. And as we go forward, as we're studying the book of Romans, it's actually really important that we're precise in, 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 precise in the terminology that we use, that we don't, we're not just talking about being saved. We're talking about being justified, being sanctified, and ultimately being glorified. So, okay. Having laid that groundwork, let's get back to Romans 6. So, Paul said, are we to remain in sin so that grace may increase? Absolutely not. Because how can we who died to sin still live in it? Over the next couple of chapters, Paul is going to explain why this is. But for now, he just states it as a fact. We died to sin. The Greek uh, tense again, is that, that aorist tense, where it's a single specific event that happened at a particular moment in time. You died to sin. We're not dying to sin. We died to it. We are dead to it. It happened at a particular moment. What moment do you think it happened? When, when did Jesus you die to sin? Sorry? When Jesus rose again. When did you die to sin? Uh, <laughs> when God died on the cross. So I would say that's when Jesus died to sin. But when we when we commit our sins. When we sorry. When we commit our sins is that when we die to sin when we sin in ephesians paul said you were dead in sin so that would kind of be like that we're dead 
at least spiritually dead in our sins. But what Paul is saying, and it's a bit unfair because he hasn't, he is actually going to explain it. But what Paul is saying is that you died to sin. And anyway, that's, that's uh, something that he's going to explain in the rest of this chapter is that we, that we are dead to sin. It's, it's dead to us. It no longer has any relevance to us. Um, And Paul says that because of that fact, like I said, he hasn't really explained why that is or how that is yet. He's going to, but he's just stating it as a fact. You, you died to sin. And because of that, he says it is impossible. How can we still live in sin? It's impossible for us to live in it. As Charles Spurgeon said, God has so changed your nature by his grace that when you sin, you shall be like a fish on dry land and you shall be out of your element and long to get into a right state again. You cannot sin for you love God. The sinner may drink down as the ox drinketh down water, but may drink sin down as the ox drinketh down water, but to you it shall be as the brine of the sea. So basically, uh, a non-believer, somebody who hasn't died to sin, may be able to, may like a, like a cow, like an ox and a cow drink up water like it, like it loves it. But for you, it'll, it'll be like salt water. The brine of the sea is like the, the salt water of the, the sea. You may become so foolish as to try the pleasures of the world, but they shall be no pleasures to you. And that's the idea here. When God's spirit enters us, it changes us. Um, it changes our nature so that we cannot sin carelessly. We can still sin, no doubt about that, but we can't really enjoy doing it. We can't rest in it. It will weigh us down. And eventually, sooner or later, we are going to long to be free of it again, to, to, to have peace with God again. And so in other words, when you have the Spirit of God inside of you, sin can only be temporary. It cannot be a permanent state for you because you're just not going to be comfortable there. So then in uh, verses three and four, Paul says, Do you not know that as many as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too may live a new life. So in other words, he said like, how can we who died to sin still live in it? And then he's like, did you not understand what was happening when you were baptized? So do you understand what it means to be baptized? In baptism, we are identifying ourselves with Jesus' burial, death, and resurrection. But we aren't just saying it, we're actually like acting it out is the idea. Now, a few weeks back, we looked at how Paul defined the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15. Do you remember what Paul said the gospel was or how Paul described it? It's another passage that you should know. It's a really important one, a very useful passage to, to know. 1 Corinthians 1, uh, 15 verses 1 through 4, Paul says, Now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel that I preached to you. So again, Paul wants to make the gospel clear, is what he's saying. So uh, the gospel that I preached to you that you received and which you stand. For I pass on to you as of first importance, the most important parts of the gospel is what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So that's the the gospel, right? That Jesus died, was buried, and was raised on the third day. And so in other words, baptism is a dramatization, it's acting out the gospel, right? The idea is that in your submersion in the water, it's like 
it's picturing dying and being buried and then coming out of the water again is being raised to life. So you're like acting out the, the three most crucial parts of the gospel, that Jesus was died, that he was buried, and that he raised on the third day. And so by being baptized, you are demonstrating by acting it out that you have chosen to identify yourself with Jesus in his gospel, with his death, burial, and resurrection. So I would encourage you, when you feel uh, ready publicly and permanently to, to identify yourself with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, you should get baptized too. It's really good. It's important. Um, however, yeah, more than that, baptism illustrates physically what has already happened to you spiritually. So, and, and that's the point that Paul is making. When you believed in Jesus, something dramatic and life-changing happened to you. You may not have realized it and you may not see it yet in your life, but it is the reality. It, a, spiritual, a spiritual reality perhaps, but a reality nonetheless. Jesus died to sin. And we have been buried with him through baptism into death. We have, Jesus died to sin and in committing our life to him, we have also spiritually died to sin is the point. Why did we die to sin? So that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too may live a new life. The reason we've died was so that we could be born again. Right, so that we could be given a new life. So that just as we shared in Jesus' death, we could also share in Jesus' life. And if you remember, Jesus wasn't just resuscitated, right? It's not like he he rose the same type of the same type of thing that died. Uh, he was raised to a new kind of life. He was raised as a new kind of being. He was still substantial, like physical. People could touch him. Every time anybody saw him after he was raised, he was eating. So he was still physical, but he could also walk through walls. So there was something dramatic that happened to Jesus in that transition from death to life. And the point is, um, you can't die and rise to, be raised to life again without it changing changing you and changing your life. We, if we've believed in Jesus and received his spirit, and as Paul will say in chapter 8, if you have believed in Jesus, you have received his spirit. If we've received the spirit of God in us, then we've been born again. Uh, we're new creations. Paul will go on to to explain that more, but we don't have to be controlled by sin anymore. Um, we have died to sin so that we are now free to live a new life, a more and more sanctified life is the point that he's going to make. So we'll pick that up next week in verse five. What do you guys think? What stands out to you or stood out to you? I was thinking about the baptism thing. Is So baptism is a representation of dying to sin and what should have already happened. Is it also almost a representation of being immersed in the word that should have come with the original salvation? Do you need to be immersed in the... Well, okay. Uh, <laughs> do you need to be immersed for to be justified? No. Yeah, I would say that that's something that, I mean, it's probably a nice illustration for lots of things. Um, you could even say that every time you're immersed in the Word of God, you're, you're, you're like raised new, right? Like you're renewed. But, um, but my understanding of the way that it's used in the New Testament is that it's, it's a, like I said, a picture of, it's, it's, a, it's how we say publicly what we have chosen to do inwardly. 
that we have chosen to identify ourselves permanently with Jesus and with his death, we're going to die to sin and we, and we have been born again and intend to be raised again and to live with him, live with him forever. It's a way of us uh, proclaiming that publicly through something that is like dramatized or actually acting it out. And wherever you see in the New Testament people who were saved, they almost immediately then were baptized as a public demonstration of what, what they had chosen to do. What else? Any verses? The differences between justification, sanctification, and glorification is interesting, and I'm finally starting to remember them. Good. <laughs> I've hammered justification for like three or four months, but um, hopefully it'll start to get there. Justification is being declared righteous. It's, it's the spoken, you are righteous, and that's something that's done. It's past tense. And then, um, yeah, sanctification is the process by, because you've been justified, right? You've been declared righteous, but you're not righteous. Nothing's really changed yet in your life. Well, it has in the sense that you've been born again and these sorts of things. But moment to moment, you're still, if you went on living your life, you'd be, you wouldn't be any more righteous than you were before in actual fact. You've just been declared it. Um, sanctification is the process by which God actually starts to make that more and more true in our lives, I guess. And yeah, glorification is looking forwards. That was that was my favorite part as well. It kind of made everything more clear. Good. <laughs> that's that's the hope. Like I said, obviously, we'll be speaking. We'll be talking lots more about that in the coming chapters. Um, because everything up until this point, it's just, like I said, is again and again and again, has been just this hammering, understand justification, understand justification, it's got nothing to do with you. And th I think that's one of, the th one of the reasons why it's really important to understand the, the book of Romans as Paul has written it as, like a, as an argument that he builds, because if you just jump into chapters 6, 7, and 8, uh, you and you don't understand that, that you don't understand that he's already laid that foundation and like nailed it down, then there are things that can be confusing because it might sound like, oh, do we actually have to do things to earn something with God? Um, but if you've, if you've studied the book from the beginning or you've followed his argument from the beginning, like there's no, there's no doubt at this point. We're five chapters in and he's just, like I said, hammered it again and again and again. Your justification is secure and it has nothing to do with you. And so now we can, now that we understand that, he can start to, like he talks uh, elsewhere about maturing, right? That you, you babies start by drinking milk, but you can't keep drinking milk forever. At some point, you've got to start eating solid food. And that's sort of what's happening here. He's, he's been giving us milk for five chapters and now he's saying, okay, that's done. Let's, let's step up, right? Let's start to mature. Let's start to move forward in our faith rather than just looking backwards to what's already been done and like, like I said, living in the past. Yeah. Anything else? Any other verses that caught your attention? hard to remember specific verses yeah what have i got i find the um that passage in corinthians where paul talks about us our lives being judged is a passage that has always stuck with me because it's just such a like clear illustration, I guess. Like Jesus laid this foundation in your life. He's justified you. Now you're living your life and what you're actually doing is like building on top of it. And the question is, what are you building? Or what are you building with? And 
personally, I think we don't, we don't know, right? Because in fact, he says like the day will make it clear. It will reveal what you've been building with because it's, we don't always know what our motivations are. And I think often we might find that many of the things that we thought were gold, silver, and precious stones were actually stuff we did for selfish reasons or for some other reasons. And there'll be other little things that we didn't even notice and that nobody else noticed that are the things that actually count, that are the gold, silver, and precious stones. And that then in that day, our lives are going to be passed through the fire, essentially, passed through God's judgment. And all the things that are that were done for selfish reasons are going to be burnt up and nothing and they're gone. And what's left behind is the things that we did for the right reasons, the things, I guess, that Jesus' spirit actually did through us. And uh, But I love that it, the, the comfort that he will still be saved, but as though through the fire. It's not talking about your justification. You're not going to lose your salvation if, if everything you've built was wood, hay, and stubble because the foundation is Jesus, right? And that's not going to be destroyed. But uh, ideally, you don't want to be the person walking into heaven with like nothing to show for the life that you've lived. The other thing that I think is interesting about that is, and this idea of justification versus sanctification and uh, entering heaven versus like rewards and inheritance and all of that kind of thing is there's, there's two things that God is often criticized for and they actually like almost contradict each other. The one thing is God is, people criticize God for creating man, knowing that man was going to sin and so many were going to end up in hell, right? And the answer to that, I think, is that God has made salvation as easy as it is possible to make it. And that's what you said yesterday, last week, right, Ryan? We looked at the verse where Jesus, where the Jesus followers ask him, what is the work of God? And Jesus said, the work of God is to believe on the one whom he sent. And you're like, that doesn't really sound like a lot of work. He's made it as easy as possible. All you have to do is believe in him, to trust in him, and he will save you. So that's his answer to the criticism of how could you create man knowing that they would sin. He's like, well, I made, the, I, made the, I made a way for them to be saved and I made it as easy as possible for them to be saved. But then the other criticism that people have is how can God save a murderer who confesses on his, repents on his deathbed the same way as he saves a saint who has lived selflessly all their life, right? That's not fair to treat them the same. And I think that that is kind of resolved also in this idea of sanctification. It's just because they both enter heaven doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be in the same position in heaven. And that that, that saint who worked all their life saying, we can't really define who is and who isn't and what's, what's selfless and what isn't. Like I said, ultimately, that's only God's going to be able to judge that. But um, he is going to reward those who have been faithful to him, I guess, which I think is kind of cool. Okay. Any anything else? Any other thoughts? Okay, let's pray. Lord God, uh, I thank you again so so much for your word, Lord, and the just an uh, unbelievable privilege it is to have it, to be able to read it, to be able to study it, Lord, and to have your truth uh, revealed to us through it. I thank you that you have made our justification, you have made justification available to everyone in a way that anybody can access, Lord, and I, I thank you that you've made that so clear that we have been justified. It's past tense, it's done, and we had nothing to do with it. It's not given to us based on our works, but on our faith. But Lord, I, 
I also thank you that that there are, that you have more in mind for us than that, Lord, that you have greater hopes for us, that you see more potential in us than simply to, to be justified, Lord, that you do want to sanctify us, that you want to make us into your image. And I ask that you would help each of us to uh, surrender ourselves to you, to allow you and your spirit in us to work, to work that sanctification out in us, to make us more and more like you, Lord. Help us to focus on those things that are of eternal value, Lord, and to build in our lives those things that will last, those things that will matter, and not to waste our time and to waste opportunities on things that are, from an eternal perspective, meaningless. Lord, I, yeah, I ask and pray that you would, I, I thank you that even our sanctification really is more your work than ours. And again, I just pray and ask that in each of our lives, you would help us to submit to that process, Lord, and to allow us to allow you to make us more like yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.